We are going to listen again this evening. The, as you can see on the outline, it's, uh, tonight's about 144,000. And uh, so, anyways, let's get started. Chapter 3, The 144,000. Eli Jacobs plodded home from the synagogue, head bowed and shoulders sagging. The Orthodox Jewish scholar looked older than his 56 years, especially on this day. Eli was discouraged. His once burgeoning congregation in Hedera, Israel, had dwindled like water in a drought until only 12 members remained. No longer able to support a rabbi, the congregation had pleaded with Eli, a former professor of religion at Jerusalem's Hebrew University, to become their lay leader. Eli couldn't argue. After all, he didn't have the responsibilities that came with being a husband and a father. He'd always been so deeply immersed in his studies that he'd never married. What kind of son are you? His mother had chided relentlessly. You're married to your books. How are you ever going to give me grandchildren? Although Eli had devoted his life to Judaism, he often felt that somewhere along the way his religion had taken the wrong road. Most Jews in Israel were now Zionists, more secular than religious. Few had any expectations of an actual Messiah. And although Eli was deeply devoted, even his own beliefs no longer touched his heart. He performed his synagogue duties with a growing sense of detachment. One evening, Eli sat in his study at home, feeling weary, even though he'd done little work that day. As usual, his radio was tuned to Kol HaMusica, Tel Aviv's classical station. He stared without seeing at the open Torah on his desk until a stirring choral work began to penetrate his malaise. He had heard the piece many times. It was Sir Arthur Sullivan's The Lost Chord. But tonight its music spoke to his heart as never before. The lyrics portray a weary composer sitting at his organ, letting his hands wander idly over the keys. They unwittingly strike a magnificent chord of music, like the sound of a great amen. The chord leaps from the organ into the composer's soul, and though he tries desperately to find it again, he cannot. Finally, he gives up, realizing that only in heaven will he ever hear that chord again. It is my own story. Eli muttered. I have often sensed something undefined that I long to know fully, but like that chord, it eludes me. He closed his Torah, switched off the radio, and went to bed. The next morning, Eli sat in his usual booth at the restaurant down the street, ordering his typical breakfast. Moments later, he heard his name spoken in a Scottish brogue, thick as molasses. He looked up to see a gray-haired, ruddy-faced man of about sixty standing beside his table. "'Professor Jacobs,' the man said again. Eli nodded. "'I am Wallace Dunn, a Christian pastor just sent to Hadera from a missionary society in Edinburgh. May I sit down?' Eli nodded. "'I have been wanting to meet you.' Duncan said, because it seems that you and I may be the only non-Muslim religious leaders in the city. Though our beliefs differ widely, I thought you might be willing to help me get my bearings as I begin my work here. The Scot explained his mission. At present, some 75 Christians lived in Hedera, and they had begged the missionary society for a pastor. He had been sent to organize the separate house churches into a unified whole. Adera has more Christians than devout Jews, Eli said, shaking his head. 
As the conversation continued, the two men found they had much in common. They loved the same books and music and were both avid fans of American baseball. An hour later, they parted, agreeing to meet again the following day. The pair met for breakfast every Friday for the next three weeks, and their friendship grew. With the current turmoil in Europe, it was inevitable that the Jewish professor and the Scottish pastor would discuss politics and the growing influence of British Prime Minister Judas Christopher. I've even heard rumbles that the European Union wants to unite into a single empire and make Christopher its head, Eli said. I am convinced that these are the first tremors of an imminent upheaval that will bring about the worldwide disasters predicted by your Tanakh, what we Christians call the Old Testament, and by several New Testament books as well, Duncan replied. Eli fell silent, and his eyebrows furrowed. What is it? Duncan asked. There was something about Duncan that made him easy to talk to, and Eli found himself pouring out his doubts about the faith he'd given his life to. When he finished, he smiled ruefully. I guess I'm an Orthodox Jew who wonders whether he still believes in Judaism. Duncan remained silent for a moment, his chin resting on his clasped hands. Eli, do you know much about Christianity? Only by hearsay. I've never studied it. I hope you will not find my question offensive, but I must ask... Would you be willing to hear how Christianity fulfills the majority of the Tanakh prophecies? Yes, I'm ready to listen, Eli responded, surprising himself. Very good. We'll begin at breakfast next Friday. The following Friday morning, Eli was full of questions as he entered the restaurant to meet with Pastor Duncan. His friend was not there, and Eli noticed that patrons and cafe employees were clustered around the TV. "'What's going on?' he asked. One of the waitresses answered without taking her eyes off the screen. "'Thousands of people have disappeared out of Israel, just vanished off the face of the earth. They're saying that seventy-five people are missing from Hedera, and millions upon millions have vanished around the world,' a patron added. "'There have been disasters everywhere, two air crashes in Tel Aviv alone.' After waiting in the restaurant for a while, Eli decided his friend must not be coming. Was he one of the people who went missing, Eli wondered? Eli no longer had an appetite, and he returned home to watch the news. Every channel, at least those that were still airing, reported a world in turmoil. Apparently, people had disappeared in the same instant. Wherever they were, whatever they were doing, it soon became clear that all those missing were Christians, though almost a quarter of American and British pastors remained. So only Christians have disappeared, Eli muttered, shaking his head in wonder. I have no idea what all this means, but it must say something about the validity of Christianity. In the next few weeks, he began studying the Tanakh prophecies with his synagogue members. But like the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, the people floundered without anyone to explain what they were reading. Eli sank into discouragement. Self-styled prophets create turmoil in Jerusalem, the front page of Tel Aviv's newspaper screamed. Eli's pulse quickened as he read the story. 
two unknown street preachers, calling themselves the two witnesses, were roaming the streets and parks of Jerusalem, calling Jews to repent of their sins, recognize the rabbi Jesus as the true Messiah, and return to their ancient calling to be a holy nation. Eli dropped his newspaper. Maybe these men can answer my questions. Within the hour, he was on a bus to Jerusalem. Once he arrived, he learned that the two men, the two witnesses, as the locals called them, often spoke in Jerusalem's soccer park. He hailed a cab so he could see for himself. The park teemed with strolling couples, joggers, picnicking families, and the hollow pop of tennis balls. Yet an odd sound reached him from the distance, a jumble of dissonant shouts and invectives. Curious, he followed the noise, and he soon saw the cause. An angry mob was hurling rotting fruit and raw eggs at two men standing on a bench. As he watched, police officers appeared and dispersed the unruly crowd. The two men, dressed in threadbare black suits, strode to a drinking fountain where they tried to wipe off their splattered clothing. Eli followed them. As he approached, the taller man said, Greetings, Professor Eli Jacobs. Eli's mouth fell open. How... How do you know who I am? God revealed it to us. We have known you were coming since you left Hedera. Eli gaped in disbelief. Who on God's earth are you? We are two of God's prophets. Come, let's find a comfortable place to talk. They led him to a nearby park bench under the shade of a spreading cedar. At their urging, Eli told his story from his growing doubts about Judaism to his futile attempts to find the current meaning of ancient Tanakh prophecies. Have you ever read the Christian book of Revelation? The shorter witness asked. When Eli admitted he had not, the man said, Then we will read it with you. Tomorrow, bring your Tanakh, and we will bring our Bibles. We will open your eyes to truths you have never suspected. Over the next few evenings, the two witnesses showed Eli how Jewish prophetic books such as Daniel and Ezekiel match up with the Apostle John's revelation. They went on to compare these prophecies with world events, emphasizing Judas Christopher's expanding influence across Europe in the chaotic wake of the rapture. These events foreshadow the worldwide disasters prophesied in the books we've been studying. Eli shook his head, trying to take it all in. I wish I knew what we could do about it. That we can tell you, the taller witness said. God has taken Christians out of the world to focus on His promise to bring His chosen people, the Jews, back to Him. In fact, God sent you to us because you have a role to play in that plan. You are to be His evangelist to all who will listen. But I am just one person. How can I? No, you are not just one person. You are more than Elijah was in the wicked days of King Ahab. Just as God reserved 7,000 Israelites who did not bow to Baal, so he has chosen thousands of Jewish leaders like you to become evangelists throughout the world. All of them are new converts who came to Christ after the rapture. Many of them are already at work. You see, you are not the first God has sent to us, the second witness said. There will soon be 144,000 of you, 12,000 from each of the ancient tribes of Israel, who will lead a worldwide movement to evangelize the world for Christ before the end comes. But I 
not even a Christian. Aren't you ready to become one? I am. Eli's voice was sober, but it also held an undercurrent of exultation. I believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. He let that truth sink in for a moment. What now? Come again tomorrow, and we will tell you. That night in his hotel room, Eli Jacobs dreamed of vague, distant chords from a breathtaking song. When the song ended, his heart ached for some beckoning mystery just beyond the horizon. Though he could not remember the melody after he awoke, he knew he had just heard a lost chord like the one that had so tantalized the composer Sullivan. Its elusive echoes filled him with unspeakable joy. When Eli arrived at the park that afternoon, an even more clamorous mob surrounded the two witnesses. As he approached, the rioters began to pelt the speakers as before, but this time the missiles were not refuse and eggs. They were stones. In a burst of outrage, Eli raced toward the barbarians, bellowing at them to stop, but as he drew closer, he stopped short. Though the air swarmed with rocks being hurled at short range, the witnesses stood unscathed. Finally, the frustrated crowd gave up and turned away. What just happened? Eli cried. How is it possible that none of those stones hit you? God has promised to protect us from harm until our task is complete, one of them said. Which brings us to the reason we asked you to return, the other added. The three men sat on a bench as the two witnesses began their explanation. As you and the other evangelists go out into the world, many will reject your message. You will endure the same kind of vitriol you just saw spewed at us. When people hear that the droughts, plagues, earthquakes, and contamination now beginning to cover the earth are God's warnings, they will, as they say, shoot the messenger and take out their anger on you. Well, that's not pleasant to hear, Eli said. But it will be worth it if our apostate nation returns to its original calling. That's absolutely right, the taller witness said. The good news is that God has sealed and secured you for this purpose. Eli returned to Hedera buoyant and encouraged. On the following Sabbath, he gave his testimony to his congregation of twelve. He told them how the Tanakh prophecies meshed with the New Testament, how they explained the disappearance of the Christians and predicted coming world events. Three of the young men, college students, accepted his explanation eagerly and immediately became believers. The remaining members stalked out of the synagogue. How could you betray our heritage like this? they demanded. Eli and the three new believers met in his home that afternoon, recognizing that they were possibly the only Christians in a city of nearly 100,000. Eli explained what they were up against. According to the prophecies, horrible persecutions will soon afflict Israel and Jews all over the world. We must persuade our people to acknowledge the resurrected Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, turn away from their sin, and resume their role as God's holy people. To Eli's surprise, all three students felt the urgency of the call and were ready to join the evangelistic campaign. One went to England, one to New York, and the other to Germany. 
Eli remained in Israel and, modeling his ministry after the Apostle Paul, began traveling from town to town, preaching in local synagogues. More often than not, the presiding rabbis ejected him before he had a chance to complete his sermon, but many people were responding. Typically, a quarter to a third of those in attendance heard his message and believed. Of these, three or four usually felt the call to join the evangelistic effort. Eli was heartened. An evangelist in Austria, fearing that phone and email connections were no longer secure, organized an amateur ham radio network to connect as many of the Jewish evangelists as possible. Eli bought a radio and learned through the network that the young man he'd sent to England had sent out new missionaries, who had also sent out missionaries, who had in turn sent out still others until Messianic Jews now preached Christ in all English-speaking nations. Other evangelists reported similar successes in every country in the world. Soon, there were 144,000 evangelists preaching across the globe, and in their wake came intense persecution. When the disasters foretold by the two witnesses began to descend upon the unrepentant world, people blamed the Messianic Jews for the calamities. It wasn't long before these evangelists began to encounter the same fury that had been hurled at the witnesses. People hated them, not only for their message, but also because their holy and pure lives exposed the immorality of the hearers. The audience struck back, spitting at the evangelists and barraging them with curses and violence. Still, because the Lord had sealed these preachers for this very purpose, they were able to persevere unscathed. It was in the city of Beersheba in southern Israel that Eli experienced his most spectacular success and his first taste of persecution. Of all the places Eli had been, the local synagogues in Beersheba had been particularly receptive to his message. Led by God's Spirit, these new converts combined their resources to rent the local Andrei Minkoff Auditorium and invite the public to a major address by the controversial Professor Jacobs. Nabal Cohen was owner of one of Beersheba's many strip clubs. When he heard of the upcoming event, he called together the proprietors of related establishments, gentlemen's lounges, escort services, bars, casinos, and brothels for an emergency meeting. More than 70 people attended. Gentlemen, we all know that an epidemic of Messianic Jewish preachers has infested our nation, Cohen began. One of the most notorious of these will be speaking at the Minkoff Auditorium tomorrow night. I'm sure you know what their preaching has done to businesses like ours in other cities. Yes, the manager of a casino responded. After this professor spoke in Ashkelon, business in our trades dropped 30%. Several owners cited additional examples of financial losses and closures in other cities. I see that you understand the problem, Cohen said. So the question is... How do we stop this guy? People tossed out ideas into the fog of tobacco smoke. Hire a hitman to put Jacobs down. Kidnap him and smuggle him out of town. Plant a car bomb. Send thugs to beat him to a pulp. Plant hecklers in the auditorium to drown out his speech. No one could agree until the manager of an escort service said, Why get rid of Jacobs when we can use him to our advantage? How so? Cohen asked. We could discredit him publicly. Think what that would mean. His speech would be canceled, and even better, the people he has already converted would discount his message and revert to their former habits. They will be ours again. It won't work, 
someone else replied. We won't catch him doing anything wrong. These Messianic Jews are as upright as a saloon piano. Did I say he had to do something wrong? We simply make it appear that he is doing something wrong. I suppose you have an idea, Cohen said. All we have to do is pick him up, force him into one of our establishments, and then set him free once he's inside, the man continued. He'll make a beeline for the door, and we'll have a news crew waiting with their TV cameras as he comes out. Think what it will do to his cause when the footage is broadcast all over the world. <laughs> and think what it will do for our cause, Cohen added gleefully. The plan was adopted unanimously. That evening after dinner, Eli returned to his hotel room. As he slid his keycard into the door, two burly men appeared behind him. One clapped a hand over his mouth while the other clutched his arm. Don't say anything, his captors ordered. You've said way too much already. They dragged him down the back stairway and forced him into a waiting sedan. As the car sped away, Eli quipped, If you're taking me to dinner, don't bother. I just ate. Getting no answer, he continued, Well then, while we're on our way to wherever, let me tell you about the Messiah our ancestors rejected. As Eli continued to talk about Jesus, the car pulled into an alley and stopped at a dimly lit delivery entrance. The sign above read, The Salome Club, in both Hebrew and English. Eli did not resist as the two men shoved him through the door and into the club's seating area. One held him captive while the other approached Nabal Cohen, who was standing several feet away. We got him, boss. Did he give you any trouble? Didn't resist at all. Not even when we brought him in here. But I'll tell you, I'm glad to be rid of him. He preached to us the whole way. Almost turned me into a messianic Jew. Okay, everything is ready, Cohen said. Release him and tell him he's free to go. But when Eli was set free, he didn't scurry towards the door as his captors had expected. Instead, he stepped in front of the stage where girls were performing and faced the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about the Messiah our ancestors rejected. Eli had uttered little more than three sentences before a drunken patron stood and shouted, Get that freak out of here! A chorus of voices took up the cry, and a bouncer rushed forward to force the professor out the front door. But before he reached Eli, another cry rang out, Let him speak! The guy's got guts! Yeah, let's at least hear what he has to say, someone in the crowd echoed. At that moment, a chair flew through the air and knocked the bouncer to the floor. More chairs followed, sailing across the room from all directions. Several drunken patrons began throwing punches, and others quickly joined the fray. In moments, the chaos escalated into an outright brawl. Drinking glasses were shattered, tables were flipped over, and beverages were splattered everywhere. It was a good ten minutes before sirens screamed and the police burst through the door. An hour later, Eli Jacobs sat on a cot, staring through the bars of a municipal jail cell. He had been charged with inciting a riot. When will my hearing come up? He asked a prison guard. Maybe never, the guard sneered. The law in this city sides with the businesses you're trying to ruin. Can't risk losing the taxes. You may rot in this cell with your trial conveniently forgotten. Well, Eli replied, the Apostle Paul endured much worse. That night, he dreamed once more of a choir singing the same magnificent song. When he awakened, his soul ached with an unquenchable longing to hear the tune again, to immerse himself in its ecstatic chords. 
The morning guard greeted Eli with a pleasant surprise. One of the leading city magistrates had become a Messianic Jew after hearing Eli preach in nearby Ashkelon. After reviewing the evidence, he ordered the prisoner released. That evening, as scheduled, Eli Jacobs delivered his message at the Andrei Minkoff Auditorium. Three and a half years after the rapture, the world was rocked by new traumas. From Judas Christopher's desecration of the temple and unprecedented reign of terror against the Jews to cataclysmic plagues and natural disasters. When it seemed that the horror could not get worse, it did. Christopher was elected president of the European nations, and from that position of power, he ground the rest of the world under his heel, largely by economic coercion and military conquest. Natural disasters increased exponentially all over the world, causing widespread death and unprecedented misery. Eli and the rest of the worldwide network of 144,000 evangelists, now sure they were in a race against time, spent every waking hour calling people to repentance. Heartening successes were interspersed with violent rejections, but the people they had led to the faith became shining beacons of love and holiness, and many became diligent champions of the good news, some through the example of their changed lives and others through their deaths for the sake of Christ. The worldwide spiral into chaos seemed inevitable until Christopher's tyranny began to foment rebellion. Several North African and Asian nations reached the tipping point. They formed an alliance and marched their armies against Christopher, whose forces were amassed in Israel, preparing to vent his deep-seated hatred of the Jews by destroying Jerusalem. Eli Jacobs sat in his cottage in Hedera, his eardrums assaulted by the cacophony of bombs, missiles, gunfire, artillery salvos, and screaming warplanes. Christopher's battle against the Allied rebels had spread all over Israel. Eli learned through the ham radio network that a massive Chinese army had just crossed the Euphrates River and was now marching toward the battlefront. Sensing the end of the tribulation was near, he remained at peace, confident that he was in his Lord's hands. That night, he had a dream so vivid he couldn't distinguish it from reality. He found himself in a place of splendor beyond imagination, a great throne towering before him, surrounded by a dazzling rainbow of gem-like colors. Before the throne lay a sea as smooth and as clear as glass. Magnificent creatures hovered above it, he was so absorbed in the majesty before him that it was some time before he realized he was not alone. On one side stood the student he had sent to England. On the other side stood the other two men from Hedera. Then, looking about him in awe, Eli realized that he was standing among a great throng, the rest of the 144,000 whose efforts had brought so many people to their Messiah. At once... As if on cue, Eli Jacobs and the others began to sing. I know this song, he exclaimed. It was the beautiful tune that had so often eluded him on earth. He lifted his voice with unparalleled joy. As he and his fellow evangelists sang their praise to God, he realized this was not a dream. He now stood in the throne room of heaven itself. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when, of course, in this uh, drama that we just listened to, you, you get, uh, as far as this timeline in this, you get from uh, pre-tribulation 
or pre-rapture, and then you, you experience the rapture in this drama, go through the entire tribulation period until then uh, the Jewish believers there, or Jewish evangelists, were uh, taken to heaven. And so spanned quite a, a long span there in that 25 minutes that we walked through. Um, but thinking about the, um, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will preach the gospel and think of the great revival that's going to take place. And uh, thinking about, you know, I think, and just as just my thinking, that, that that last three and a half years, uh, when Scripture talks about the utter turmoil that the earth will be in, that there will be a massive return and a massive revival and awakening to the Lord. Uh, because of, you know, it's interesting, this, this week Dave and I were in uh, Tulsa, and I had the opportunity to sit on a couple of missionary approvals, and uh, one of the guys that was uh, about to head to Australia was talking about the similarities between Australia and America, and that because of the um, all that we have, and most of us don't really lack much, that it, it seems much more difficult for us who don't need God to need God. Does that make sense? And then that they also experienced that um, in Australia. So thinking through just kind of logically that as, and, and if you've been on very many mission trips and you've been in places where um, they, they need everything, and so it seems easier for them to realize that they need God. They need, they need something, right? And so thinking through that even for us as Americans who uh, maybe find it difficult to see a need for God. And think about in this tribulation period when, you know, the world is in utter chaos, that many people are going to be looking for something, right? Looking for hope, looking for uh, what they're missing. And so when um, 144,000 evangelists are unleashed on the world, there's going to be a mass and major revival and great awakening. Um, and it just underscores to me the mercy of God, that all throughout Scripture, um, and even in your own life, the reality is that you did not take the initiative in your relationship with God. God took the initiative. Aren't you glad that God took the initiative in your relationship? God came after you. Uh, he is seeking to save that which is lost. It was him seeking us, and this is carried out all throughout Scripture, and that God is always seeking after that which was lost, and, I, I, and the, um, the amazing awakening or revival that's going to take place. And all throughout Scripture, you, uh, I'm going to read in Romans chapter 11, if you want to turn there, turn there quickly, I guess, because I'm going to read it pretty quick, but all throughout Scripture, you'll see that God has always, in the word that's been used throughout Scripture, is the word remnant. God has always left a remnant of, of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to be a testimony of who He is. Um, and in Romans chapter 11, it alludes to this. Uh, Romans 11, chapter 1, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. I say then, God, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he pleads for God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek 
my life. You remember, you remember uh, when Elijah had his pity party there in 1 Kings 19, and he just had this great victory. Uh, then he's still running for his life, and he goes out and sits under the tree. You guys remember the story? And he's like, I'm the only one left, God, and you have basically failed me and not saved anyone. And what was God's response to Elijah? Look in verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You think that was an encouragement to Elijah? Like he was having, you ever felt like you're all alone? Yes or no? Yes. And the truth is, even if God had, ne- had not reserved 7,000 men that had never bowed their knee to Baal, was Elijah alone? God was with him, wasn't he? Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so all throughout Scripture, you see that word, that word remnant, that God has always preserved and protected His people. Um, so let's, let's kind of look, and we're going to notice ten things that's on your outline here. Uh, ten things that uh, a couple different passages of Scripture, uh, they're listed on the top of your outline. Revelation 7, 1 through 8, Revelations 14, uh, 1 through 5, that really 10 uh, truths about these 144,000, right? So Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. All right? So you just kind of see this protection that is uh, provided. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and to see, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. And of Gad, and Asher, and Naphtali, and Manasseh. I'm not going to read the 12,000 every time. I think you figured it out. Uh, and verse 7, of, of Simeon, and then Levi, and Issachar. And verse 8, uh, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Um, and so you uh, who are really brilliant in math, right? So 12,000 from 12 tribes equals... All right. Yeah, you're right. 144,000. All right, so let's look at Revelation 14, verse 1 through 5. <clears throat> then I looked. I still hear pages, so I'll wait a second. Revelation 14, verse 1 through 5. Then I looked. Behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of the harpists playing their harps. They sang as it was, or as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in, the, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne. All right, so again, we're going to look at ten things. Again, they're on your outline uh, that are pointed out in these, in these scriptures, all right? The first is that they are selected from the twelve tribes 
of Israel, right? So we, we just read through that. We read those 12 tribes that were listed. Um, and then interesting, it's also on your outline, just some uh, um, interesting times in Scripture when the number 12 is used. The 12 sons of Jacob, which were the 12 tribes of, tribes of Israel, the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate, 12 loaves on the table of showbread, the 12 gates in the heavenly city, and then 12 future thrones on which 12 apostles will sit to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so number one there, they're selected from the, the, the 12 tribes. Number two, they are sealed on their foreheads. They're sealed on their foreheads. And interesting um, that there'll be two groups of people that will have a mark, right? So they'll have the mark of the beast, which is what? 666, right? And then you'll have the seal or the mark on their foreheads. Revelations 14.1 says, uh, his father's name will be written on their foreheads, right? So, and I think um, when you hear the word sealed, what, what kind of, what does that mean to you, that they're sealed, protected. right? Protected, right? That's the first one that comes to my mind is protected. Um, and I think about all, you know, through the Old Testament, through Scripture, talking about uh, Noah was sealed and protected from the, the flood and Lot from the judgment on Sodom. Rahab was protected in, in the destruction of Jericho. God sealed the 7,000 prophets, which is read about there in Romans 11, chapter 4. Um, and, and on and on we see that. Where in Scripture is it mentioned that, or is it mentioned, that you and I, and I'm assuming that you are believers, uh, that we're sealed? Right, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? And where is that in Ephesians, right? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also have believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in that sealing of the Holy Spirit referenced there in Ephesians, and we think of this word protected, that seal on us as believers, what is being protected? Our soul. And, and, and it's being protected because of why? Because of our faith. Because of our salvation, right? It's the same understanding that I can't earn salvation, right? It's a gift of God. And I can't keep my salvation. Is it your, is it your responsibility to keep your salvation? Do you think you can be good enough to keep your salvation? Yeah, back up and ask another question. Could you be good enough to earn your salvation? You're right, you couldn't. I know you guys, you definitely couldn't. So this idea of that in the tribulation period, these 144,000 will be sealed. And as believers in Christ, we are also sealed, right? Our salvation is protected, isn't it? Yes. That's right. We can be bad. We can't be. Well, I would test that. We can't be bad enough to lose it, right? Some of you might be testing that. I don't know. We can, because it's our salvation is a gift, right? It wasn't earned, and it can't be lost. And so, aren't you thankful for that? Uh, thankful for that. It was interesting. Uh, the, the other day, I met um, a lady and uh, started talking. I had uh, the youth T-shirt on that said Jesus across there, and and I saw her. You know, like acknowledging with her eyes my shirt and so then she said uh, 
I love your shirt. And I said, oh, thank you very much, you know. And she said, he is faithful. And just started, like, she started testifying about uh, Jesus. And so I said, well, where do you go to church? She said, I don't go to church anywhere. I just moved here, you know. It's like, I got a good church for you, you know. <laughs> and gave, gave, her a, uh, gave her a card. And then she asked me an interesting question that I don't get asked often, especially in, like, a two-minute conversation with someone. She said, uh, do you believe in internal security? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. She goes, you believe once saved, always saved? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. She said, awesome. Well, I'll maybe visit your church then. And I was like, okay. Uh, so we're sealed. Thank God for that we're sealed. Uh, number three, um, that we are there, and this is talking about them. They're servants of the living God. They're servants of the living God. Um, again, we, we read in, in uh, Revelation 7, 3, they are servants of God and I, I just kind of started thinking through uh, this afternoon these ten truths of um, the 144,000 witnesses, and it just seemed like so many parallels that we have the same truths in us through Scripture, the same promises. Um, Galatians 5:13. Uh, Let me read it real quick for you. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And again, talking about the grace that we've received through Christ, and the rest of that verse says, but through love, serve one another. God has called us to serve, hadn't He? Just as He's called them to be servants of God, later in the passage we read, it talks about they were following the Lamb, they were servants of God. And, and, and again, I'm just kind of looking through the parallels of us as believers that uh, we have been selected, we have been sealed, and we are to be what? servants of God. Let me read one more passage. You can, you can write it down if you want to turn there quickly. You can, but uh, Mark chapter 10. That'll be a familiar verse of scripture when I read it, but Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Does God want us to serve one another? Yes. He does, doesn't he? And so, again, this idea they were selected, they were sealed, they were servants. Uh, the fourth one there, they were separated Unto God. They were separated unto God. Uh, Revelations 4, 14, 4, which we said, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Um, and again, it says they need to be focused. They will suffer persecution. They will free to do ministry full time. And Paul kind of alludes this to this. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And, and remember, Paul is writing, not me when I read this, all right? For those of you who are married... But I want you to be with I want you to be without care. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, and I think it alludes to why uh, in Scripture we talk about the 144,000 um, who are going to be devoted to ministry, unmarried. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, and how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things in the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
Verse 35, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without, this is the word I didn't really want to read, distraction. Right? So it's calling, and, and uh, we're not going to say male or female at this point, it's going to call your spouse a what? Distraction. Paul said that, not me, okay? And my spouse is not here, so you better not tell her that, all right? Distraction, again, so just this idea of being completely sold out, focused, separated for God's use. That's, that's the point of what he's talking about here with these Jewish believers. And, and uh, turn to John, thir- John 17, excuse me, John 17. Again, I'm just kind of drawing some scripture that I think are uh, parallels uh, for us as believers today. John 17, verse 13. But now I, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that you may have, that may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Again, this is. So some context, if you're not familiar, this is Jesus praying. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. And, and you get the understanding, just as it says here, that these uh, 144,000 evangelists will be um, focused, separated, on mission for God. Is that really any different than what we should be? It's not, is it? We're to be separated. We're, not, we're, to, be, uh, not, we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And uh, today, actually, as we were driving back, listening to an illustration of this, it was um, talking about, um, I thought it was a neat way of illustrating about uh, a boat on the water, like the, the boat is in the water, right? But you don't want the water in the boat, correct? And, and to illustrate for us is that we are to be in the world, not of the world. We're in the world, the world shouldn't be in us, right? It's the same. So you think about them being separated for a purpose. Romans 12 says what? Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Right? And again, when it's talking about the world there, it's talking about the world system of belief or their philosophy in life or their worldview, that we are to be different, separated. Right? The, the next one, number five, they are strong in their faith. These are the ones who follow Lamb wherever He goes, Romans 14, verse 4. They're focused, they're committed, they're singular in purpose. And they're going to um, endure persecution, aren't they? They're protected, but that doesn't protect them from persecution, does it? And, and yet they're still strong in their faith. And we talked about this last week, that there's, there is people all over the world today who are persecuted for their faith. And uh, aren't, you, aren't you thankful that you're not really persecuted for your faith? Yes or no? Are you thankful for that? Yeah. I wonder if we face persecution, what would it do for our faith? 
we have one answer, strengthen it. Who would agree with that? Who hopes it would strengthen it, right? How many of you would, uh, you're afraid it would cause you to lose your faith? Hope not. We, we really, I guess we really don't know until we're there, do we? When we're challenged, I, I pray that I would be found faithful. Um, I pray that you would be found faithful. Matthew 6, 23 says what? Seek first the kingdom of God. And I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's your reality. Um, my guess is, if you're like me, it's, that's what you hope is your reality, but not always is it, is it? Isn't it, isn't it easy to be distracted? Okay, and we're not talking about our spouses still, all right? But it's easy to be distracted, and it's easy to seek other things. And we've talked a lot about this in other studies, but how easy it is for us to seek everything the world has to offer except what God has to offer. And, and not always do those, or these, what God's offering and what the world's offering is typically not headed in the same direction, is it? They're usually uh, counterintuitive of each other, Right. And, and so they're strong in their faith, and, and I think the challenge for us, I mean, we're talking about these parallels between uh, the 144,000 evangelists that we see in Scripture of what God is saying they are and how they live and who they are, and, and I wonder if that's what God would say of me. Am I, a, am I a man of strong faith? Am I a person of strong faith? The, the next one. I was watching that clock, but it hasn't moved since I got up here, so I guess we're good. <clears throat> so I just looked at my watch and like, oh, wow, it's time to leave. Uh, there's, you'd think I'd have figured that out before 30 minutes was up, but just kept thinking, oh, i got time. They're spared from coming judgment. Revelation 6, 17 says, uh, and it's a question, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able uh, to stand? In Revelation 7, we get the answer and and we've read it but after verse 1 of revelation 7 after these things i saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree and i saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living god and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying do not harm the earth the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of god on their foreheads and so we see that they're spared from the coming judgment. Um, number seven, they are secure in the midst of the tribulation. Again, we talked about the seal, and the seal would mark them, and God would protect them. Um, at the end, after the tribulation, we see the vision in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Uh, we won't take time to read it, but in that passage, John, what he pictures or what he, the vision he sees in heaven, which is at the end of the tribulation period, what does he see but 144,000 Jewish believers? Um, and so through that, we also understand that they were protected. They were, they were protected through the tribulation period. Verse, or number eight, I know I'm going really quickly now, so we're out of time. Number eight, they are successful in their ministry. So they're selected, sealed servants who are separated, strong, and spared, and then they are also, number eight, successful. Verse 9 and verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7. Again, as John at the end 
has a vision. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And verse 14 says, And I said to him, Sir, you know, so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so it's the picture of those, the fruit of the ministry of the 144,000 evangelists, a great multitude which no one could number. Remember, tribe, tongue, and nation singing praises to the Lord. And again, as we looked last week, many of the, the tribulation believers, those who've placed their faith in Christ in tribulation, as we looked at last week, are going to be martyred. They're going to be killed for their faith. Um, and so the last one, and we're skipping through quite a bit, sorry, but the last, or number nine, excuse me, they are set apart uh, for the kingdom. And again, we've kind of talked about this. Some of this is a little bit um, overlapping. The number 10 then is they're singing a new song in heaven. Revelations 14, verse 1 through 3. Again, in the, the drama we listened to, it alluded to this. I thought it was interesting how he talked about that uh, there was this song in this Jewish man's head. He just couldn't quite catch the words to it. And then when he uh, gets to heaven, all of a sudden he's like, oh, that's the song I've had in my head. Then I looked, verse 1, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's names written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of the harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except who? The 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. What were they singing? Revelation 7.10 Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They were praising the Lord, weren't they? So we think about these ten things we, we walked through. We see the parallels. So they were selected. They were sealed. We've been selected. We've been sealed. We're servants of the Lord. We're supposed to be separated and strong. We're spared we're secure. God gives us fruit in our ministry. We're set apart for the kingdom. And what should the result be of what God has done in our life? What is it? To praise Him. Is there praise on your lips for the Lord? Isn't it easy um, to put our mind on other things? And, and, and forget all that God has done in our life. Do you guys ever get worried about things? Yes or no? You, you know, you can try to lie, but the answer is yes, right? Even I, who am not a worrier, I get worried about things. You ever get distracted by things? You ever get your focus on the wrong things? You ever get too much into the world when you shouldn't be? You can answer that one yes too. And all those things take our mind off of who? The Lord. They take our eye off of Christ, don't they? And when our, our eye is off of Christ, guess what we lose? The song in our heart. 
Jesus came to give us life, and life more what? Abundantly. And if we keep our eye on Christ, we can live the abundant life, can't we? And we can keep the song in our heart and praise in our heart. Don't you want, don't you want to be praising the Lord? And how easy it is to lose that focus. And when we lose the focus, we forget to worship. Let's worship God in every... Worship is, is not uh, relegated to 30 minutes on Sunday morning, is it? Worship isn't really even just music, is it? Worship is your life. Everything we do to the honor and the glory of God. Let's strive for that. God, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the, the scripture, Lord, that we've read through and just kind of processed through that. Lord, I think of the reminder of the mercy of the Lord that you will pursue us and pursue those who are lost until that final day. Lord, I pray that, that we today in our culture, in our world, in, in our sphere of influence, that we would be like the 144,000 evangelists proclaiming Jesus. Lord, may we proclaim it with our life, but may we proclaim it with our words. Lord, that we would be visible, verbal disciples. Visible, verbal followers of Christ. Lord, we want to be about your work, about your business, and we want to praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.